some changes let's change the way we eat let's change the way we live and let's change the way we treat each other you see the old way wasn't working hello, hello, so guys and gals and welcome back to the vigor revolution podcast your source for the greatest information available to restore your health strength and do all those awesome body changes that everybody's after i'm really super excited for today's podcast Going through the brief history of this, um, when I lived in Springfield, Missouri, I worked for Mercy Health Systems, and before I went out there, I encountered an individual through the Strong First Training Forums who also worked for Mercy, and this person has an amazing amount, just an incredible wealth of knowledge from having studied every possible source about human movement and development and his name is Brandon Hetzler and my first interactions with him were very funny because um, I saw him posting on the strong first forum and he would post these really difficult questions regarding movement and how to coach people questions that I myself cannot answer some of them I still cannot answer but I'm getting better at answering them and figuring out how I can be a better coach but he was um, is very well known throughout his work with Strong First and FMS. He co-founded a project called the Movement Restoration, which eventually led to a book along with Karen Rakowski and James Rayner, both of which are also employees at Mercy Health. Brandon currently oversees Mercy's Health Tracks, which is a rehab, sports, and performance clinic. And his latest project is extremely exciting. He has taken his with the Strong First and FMS communities, and he's branched out along with an associate, um, also former Strong First and RKC member Jeff O'Connor, and together they have collaborated to form the new Movement Outlaw Projects. And along with this project has come three books entitled The New Language of Movement Series. These are awesome resources for not only coaches, but anyone who's interested in how exactly we go about creating optimal movement and strength for performance. This also applies in rehab settings. And we're going to dive into all this. As we were going through this, Brandon was really, really generous with his time. He's very busy working on his projects along with um, his commitments to Mercy. And we ended up getting into some pretty deep conversations. And we ended up recording uh, unexpectedly over two hours of content about his new books and his work and his experiences in the strength, performance, and rehab settings that he has occupied. So in order to make this applicable for everybody here, I've decided to branch out and make this into a three, maybe even a four-part podcast. And I am also really want everyone to understand this information. If it's your first contact with it, you know, there's some technical terms, and it's really extremely important for all of us, whether we're coaches, parents, athletes, recovering from injuries, we all need to get a better idea of what exactly human movement is and how it relates to exercise and performance because there are some really serious misunderstandings that are causing a lot of injuries, a lot of pain, 
And the very best case scenario is that this misunderstanding is just holding somebody back from their optimal performance rather than actually leading to an injury. But all too common, we are seeing increased rates of injuries across the board, regardless of age, regardless of sport. So it's extremely important that we all start to understand movement better and incorporate it into our programming. We are seeking better health, better strength, better fitness, all these great things. So without further ado, here's part one of my interview with Brandon Hetzler. I'd also like to note that for these interviews I am creating, there will be an accompanying YouTube video which will have images to highlight exactly what we are speaking about when we're talking about postures and patterns, things of that nature. It can be really um, beneficial to see something while you're relating it to these new concepts that perhaps this is your first time immersing yourself in this field. So without further ado, here is Brandon Hessler. If somebody were to ask you, like, what's the elevator pitch for this project, basically? Well, uh, it, it, I mean... And by elevator, I mean a couple floors, not... A couple you know, floors? <laughs> it's pretty simple. It's pretty simple. I mean, I, I think we've been talking about movement for a long time. And right. we haven't... We use all these words and we use all these complicated descriptions. And I think all we've done from a movement perspective is is complicate things. You know, we've taken a complex activity of, of movement and we've just added further complicated. We've added a layer of complication to that instead of making it complex. And, and it, we've added, let me rewind, complexity, complication, movement's complex. We've, we have tried to complicate it too much. And so okay. my goal with the New Language of Movement series was to reverse that, look at movement from a completely different perspective, take away all of the exercise terms that we've used that lend to this confusion that, you know, when I say lunge, no matter what I'm talking about, you've already got a preconceived notion about what I'm doing. Right. And what we've, what, I, what we've done with this is we've tried to go back and create a, a, a language that actually is based off of movement and not off of exercise. You know, because when I say deadlift, depending on your background, you're going to think of something that may or may not be anywhere close to what I'm talking about. And in the last few years, when uh, as, as human development and the understanding of human development has improved and increased and has, has introduced and, and, and worked its way into movement practice, we've tried to take an old language and, and mix that in there. And I think all that's done is, you know, add to that complication. And so what we've tried to do is, is we've tried to simplify things, even though my butchering of com complexity and complication aren't, aren't selling that. Uh, we, we've tried to simplify things and, and, and start from scratch with a language that, that flows out of movement to describe exercise instead of trying to use exercise to describe movement. Awesome. Um, and that does come across. I just like to hear it from the source. I was thinking, can we take a brief walk through the neurodevelopmental continuum and address yeah. uh, just briefly? We can just highlight each posture, mm -hmm. uh, each pattern, and then the, um, oh, I'm going to butcher it, sorry, but the uh, neurodevelopmental strength progression, the NSP, right? The NSP, yes. So maybe we can just tie that in a little bit too as far as where those, and one thing that you really, um, this is where maybe a little bit of confusion comes in. I don't want the listener to get confused, but you do highlight that you change it to a continuum because you don't want people to think of it as like an all or nothing 
Correct. Where it's like once you did this, now this happens. These things are there are certain things like you'll talk about right now where this will be the first time you see this start to occur in mm -hmm. development, but that, that does not make it um, isolated, nor should it be that once you're past that, there's no use for that, et cetera, et cetera. So correct. Um, okay, so let's start at supine since we got to start at the beginning. So well, yeah, I mean that's and also if you look at how we first started to just to describe what we at the time were calling neural developmental sequence, it was slightly different to what we were trying to do now and how we're describing it now. You know, we realized probably two, three years ago that, you know, within that neural developmental sequence, there were two distinct paths that you went down. The path that was posture based and then the path that were, were pattern or the path that was pattern based. So we were yeah. able to separate it out into to and, and when we looked at it and started classifying it, it broke down into six postures and surprisingly six patterns. Um, you know, and, and from a pattern standpoint, you know, supine is that first pattern. Um, it's a flexion dominated pattern. We typically, you know, it's basically somebody laying down on their back. That's how, you know, when, when, when babies are born, they're in a systemically flexed posture. We're born flexed and, and supine is essentially the posture of flexion. Um, you know, we, the, 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 I don't want to say the next posture because really, you know, you could make the argument that prone and supine together, develop together. They're really more the fundamental, um, postures more than anything else. But, but prone is the opposite of that. Prone is where we see extension develop. That's, you know, laying down on your belly, you know, gravity. Yeah, tummy time, tummy yeah. Time. <laughs> you know, gravity starts to push us into full hip extension. It helps the uh, spine develop its secondary curves. We have to, uh, you know, lift the head up off the ground, which helps us develop our, our cervical uh, curvature in the spine. And then most importantly, in, in prone is where we actually see our first introduction of actual purposeful strength where we're pushing down into the ground and lifting our head up off the ground. Um you know, and, and like uh, my recent Facebook series of what the first expression of strength is, that upper body extension is what becomes our cornerstone for all further strength development because that is that is our first introduction to strength. And like we've talked about, um, you know, you can't separate movement development from strength development. They develop hand in hand with each other. And so as we see that upper body extension strength developing and prone, what then happens is we move up into a quadruped posture where you know, the trunk is up off the ground. We're supported fully on our hands, our knees, and our feet. Um, you know, the ground no longer is providing any kind of stability for us. We're having to program that motor control and work things out. A um, little bit more of an unstable environment. Our center of mass is up a little bit higher. Um, you know, quadruped became quite popular a few years ago uh with a lot of the crawling that was taking place um i do think crawling yes, <laughs> yeah, i do think crawling has its benefits and it is pretty amazing but uh depending on what author you read and what research you read quadruped is actually the newest addition to the neurodevelopmental continuum that really some people don't think existed prior to 200 years ago um you know, which once we started looking at it like that, where sitting another neural development, another posture that's within the continuum with sitting and quadruped being interchangeable. If you look at what develops in quadruped and if you look at what develops in sitting, they, they ultimately end up developing the same thing. So it's almost like two paths that end up at the same place. Um, 
And you do cite that in the movement restoration book. You talk specifically about that research that showed that, um, I believe you related it, that the, or the woman that did the research showed that the quadruped developed in uh, more developed countries mm-hmm. that had safe, a safe ground environment, whereas if you were on uh, possibly precarious terrain, you would be in a sitting posture. Yeah, yeah. Be- those same skills. Yeah, and there's actually some, in, you know, later in the day already, so some of my fancy words are... I'm forgetting them, but I remember this one. There's actually some pockets of indigenous populations still today where when they go in and they observe, their their children don't get down in quadruped at all because, just like you said, uh, putting, the, putting those babies on the ground, there's threats to those babies. And so if they put them on the ground, they're on some kind of, you know, uh, they have make some kind of mat out of leaves or something like that, and they put them in that seated posture. Um, but all the same things develop out of sitting that we see develop in quadruped. They truly are pretty much interchangeable. Um, you know, both develop uh, trunk stability. Quadruped develops freedom in the hands to interact with the environment. Um, quadruped, the one thing that is a little bit unique about quadruped is it opens the door to locomotion. But you can also see locomotion take place in the sitting with the scooting and the pushing, which... If you think about that, the amount of midline control and the amount of trunk stability that develops from having to push the hands down into the ground and scoot away, you know, we see a high level of that develop in sitting that we can't get the same type of stability out of quadruped. Um, from the sitting pos- go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and instinctually, uh, you've touched on this in the books too, that um, the not that you can call it really a motivation, but let's say the genetic drive to do all this is really to, what, explore the environment, start to interact with the environment? I mean, uh, um, again, I'll go back to uh, that, my recent Facebook post. You know, mm-hmm. one of the questions, you know, when I first posed a question, what the what was the first, what's the first expression of strength, and then gave the options, um, somebody, one of the options they gave was core strength and somebody answered right. core strength. And they, the reason they gave was you have to have a trunk, a strong trunk to, to branch away from. So they started referencing a tree. And so the question I asked was, okay, that's great. But what holds that tree to the ground? Mm-hmm. You know, obviously the roots do. So without the roots, we can't have a strong trunk, but I wasn't trying to set up the answer, making it look like it was a lower body answer. So I went back a little bit further to the question of, okay, now we have that, that tree that's going to turn into the seed what is the stimulating and driving force that causes that seed to sprout? And it's, it is, it, it's, it's that drive. Um, it, it is the environment around it. It's the sensations in that environment. And ultimately what that seed's trying to do is get to the sunlight. You know, light is what right, stimulates right. that growth. And that's what, that's what stimulates that seed to grow. And then it has to interact with the environment and everything else. So from a movement standpoint, our, the entire goal of the neural developmental continuum is to get as much quality sensory input as possible. And the whole, you know, one of the first, one of the most important parts of the developmental continuum is when we are able to free those hands up. Because as soon as those hands come up off the ground and are no longer required to support us and provide stability, now we, we can't, we're not just a, a passive participant in, in our environment. We can actively participate in our environment. We can grab things, pull things to us. Um, right. and actually interact with what's going on around us. And then from there, it's just a matter of now moving on up to where I, I can now interact with the environment, but now I also have the, the freedom and the ability to get from point A to point B to get whatever that shiny object across the room was. 
So movement is completely motivated and driven by, by the desire to, to get better sensory input. Then, you know, from, from the sitting postures, we, we go into our kneeling postures and really, you know, there's tons of different kneeling postures. You know, the, the, the hallmark of a kneeling posture is the hips aren't on the ground. Um, they're supported either, uh, they're off the ground, either they're resting on the back of the heels, they're resting on the back of one heel, or they're up in what we call a, a tall kneeling position where we're in more of a full hip extended position or a half kneeling position. You know, there's tons of asymmetrical kneeling postures. Um, you know, I think the, the, one of the most popular ones that we see is half kneeling, but if half kneeling is the only kneeling variation that you're doing, it's, it's like only being able to play one musical note. You know, you make that note sound good, but you can't play any songs. Um, you know, and then also, you know, the, the thing that often gets missed with our kneeling postures is, you know, mobility does precede stability. So kneeling starts actually down on the ground in the short kneeling postures where we're leveraging, you know, full ankle plantar flexion, full ankle dorsiflexion, full knee flexion. Um, there's actually some uh, studies out there that look at range of motion requirements. And actually, some of the kneeling variations require more and larger range of motions at the knee, the hip, and the ankle than, than squatting does. So, oh, wow. okay. and if you look at, if you look at Western population, we don't spend a whole lot of time in any kind of kneeling populations, but if you look at the rest of the world, they spend quite a bit of time in different kneeling populate, kneeling postures due to religious practices, due to how their homes are set up, you know, spending more time on the floor. And, and all of these studies are actually, we're looking at, um, and driven by, the, the need and the desire to find better hardware for total knee and total hip replacements because the hardware out there didn't accommodate the range of motion that the rest of the world needed. So we're finding that actually kneeling has a, a very large mobility component to it that we often miss when we just jump straight into half kneeling. Um, kneeling is also where we really begin to see the development of a lot of that asymmetrical stuff that, I'm ta that we talked about in volume three. Uh, the asymmetrical mm -hmm. strategies, we really are able to start splitting up left side and right side once we get to kneeling. From kneeling, we go into stance, and in stance, we have our three posture, our, our three variations of that, our symmetrical stance, our asymmetrical stance, um, and then what we'd often refer to as single leg stance, but, you know, volume four, a little, little teaser for volume four that's in process, I also now believe that single leg stance isn't actually a correct terminology. Um, we look at it oh, now. Wow, okay. We look at it now as more of a, a single leg transition. Um, mm -hmm. And just a question I'll ask for you to think about on that is, outside of you, outside of seeing that personal trainer, or that physical therapist, or you know that strength coach asking an athlete to stand on one leg and do a squat, or stand on one leg and catch this ball when they're on the Eric's pad. When was the last time you saw somebody stand on one leg to do anything? Right. You know, if you look at where we see single leg stance during normal everyday life, it's to connect asymmetrical stance on the left side, to asymmetrical stance on the right side. We do it slow. It's called walking. We do it fast. It's called running. There's not sure. too many times where we spend any kind any amount of time actually in a single leg stance without connecting asymmetrical stance on one side, asymmetrical stance on the other. So, Volume four is going to get in and bust all of the uh, common thought on what actual single leg training should be, how it should be, and, and 
why it's not bad, but how we can make it a little bit better. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, because it seems like even like the best, um, just touching on that real quick, uh, it seems like the best strategies around that is to try to get some stability in the end range of motion Mm -hmm. and then trying to reincorporate it back into the like overall goal. Yeah. Of of whatever it is that you're trying to work on. Um, So within that, let's just touch on each pattern real quick. So Mm -hmm. breathing, head control, pushing down, we touched on. Uh, weight shift, perturbations. Perturbations. <laughs> yeah. But that one, I, I get it mentally, but when it comes out, I, I, I sound pretty ignorant. So. It does. Well, we like using the big words. Word for saying uh, limb movement, right? Yeah, <laughs> yes. It'd be too easy to say that. This is when we realized that we've known for a long time that breathing was important, but we didn't really understand. I don't think we fully grasp how important breathing is. And I don't think we fully grasp or do a good job of integrating breathing into anything else that we do. Uh, right. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of really good breathing workshops out there and I'm, I don't want to take away from anything that they're doing, but I, you know, I think the one thing that if you could classify what happens, a lot of those breathing workshops, it's a lot of stuff that's ground based. And then they do a lot of stuff that's standing based. Well, what about everything in the middle? Uh, you know, breathing essentially, you know, one of the questions we always got within our graduate program is, well, when do I know that it's time to progress to a higher posture? And one of our answers, well, when you can breathe in that posture, now we're right. starting to check the boxes, it's time to progress. So breathing really is the, the, the foundation of all stability. If you can't breathe in a posture, forget everything else is going to happen from there. Um, you know, and not saying that you have to be able to diaphragmatically breathe all the time. Because, you know, breathing is ultimately going to be very contextual. But just like, like I said before in a couple of the, well, in all of the, the books, because I just copy and paste that section, you know, if you've truly mastered a strategy, you can display and, ex- and express that strategy in any context under any situation. So if you've truly right. mastered the strategy of breathing, I can, I can switch from diaphragmatic breathing to being a chest breather to breathing to get through that 5k race I'm trying to do and as soon as it's over switch right back to the diaphragmatic breathing I can control which style of breathing I'm I'm using based off of what's going on in in the context of the situation Um, it's when you can't control that and when you only have one breathing strategy that that things really become a problem Um, you know after, you know, and really when that, that newborn is brought into the world, that's about one of the only things they can do is breathe. So from breathing and from a, a flexed posture, essentially everything else develops and, and moves forward. Um, you know, head control, being able to control the head and then being able to move the head, you know, two completely different things. Um, two completely different strategies, you know, regardless of which posture we're talking about, whether we're talking about prone, supine, and any of the kneeling postures, we've got to have that, have that head it, where it needs to be um, because we know where the head goes, the body follows. Um, so we have to be able to position that head appropriately within each posture. Um, you know, both breathing and head control sound easy until somebody can't do them and then it's a completely different experience. Um, down. If I had to classify which one I thought was the most powerful out of all of the po- the patterns, I would say it's pushing down because that's really, you know, 
you know, the, the magic behind, uh, or not the magic, but the, uh, the wizard behind the curtain in the wizard of Oz, I, I, that's really where pushing down comes in because a lot of the, what the hell effects and a lot of the, Hey, let me do this and make an amazing results come from pushing down. Um, you know, pushing down, we're actually exerting force into the ground or into the implement that we're, we're lifting. And, and when we do that, you know, one of the laws of physics tells us that we're going to get an equal and opposite reaction, which is then what causes that, you know, reflex stabilization of the midline of the trunk of, of all those little stabilizer muscles. But it comes from that ability to push down and effectively utilize those ground reaction forces. Um, it's one of those, though, that if you so see... That, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say... So be, oh, well, go ahead and finish your thought. Well, I was just going to say, now, the thing with pushing down is if you see movement taking place, you've moved out of the pushing down world. You've moved into a weight shift. So when we're actually okay. pushing down, it's one of those you don't see it happening, but you feel it. And it's one of those right. that when you set it up right and get people to do this... You can challenge them to try and resist it, but they can't. No matter what, those muscles are going to turn on because the body's reacting to those ground reaction forces that we're creating. Okay. So while we're on the topic of pushing down, I'm curious, um, whether it's in performance or rehab training, do you guys have a role for like um, destabilizing um uh, balance as far as like you know using a bosu or an Eric pad or something like that you saw my juvo board video didn't you i i saw i saw that one but then there's also <laughs> been people and we don't need to name names right now but there's been people who you've collaborated with and you're close to and you know there's been it's always like a back and forth right you have a you have a statement then you have a reaction then you have yeah. a reaction, reaction and so in this you know in the strong first strength world and it seems like even in fms a lot there was like you know hey you need to be able to root you need to be stable in the ground that's what again you're going to be able to generate these forces you're going to generate control um and then you know then people have chimed in hey there's times and places to use these things don't judge other people when you're using them um me being a little arrogant i think i do tend to judge when i see certain exercises being performed and i think that i understand the strategy and i don't agree with it but that being said, you know, mm -hmm. there is a time and a place for every tool. So I'm just curious what, um, know, what, what applications you're seeing that you can say, yes, that's the right application of trying to use that modality. So, so when it comes to any of the instability stuff, mm -hmm. there is definitely a time and a place that that can be very effective. And I think that time and place is, is determined less by marketing and more by the person in front of you. But unfortunately, I think right now marketing determines when a lot of that stuff gets used because, you know, balancing on an Airx or doing swings on a BOSU look really, really cool compared to doing swings on the ground. But right. I, in all of the people that I have taught how to do kettlebell swings and all the many thousands of kettlebell swings I've done myself and all of the hours and hours of people I've, I've st stood and watched you know, do swings. Never once have I had that thought come across my mind. Hey, you're good enough with swings that I need to put you on a BOSU ball. Right. You know, because if you look at what we're trying to create out of a swing, you know, explosiveness, the ability to control a weight. Never once have I thought, you know what, if I put them on an unstable surface, it's going to make it better. Um, you know, I, I, if that is, if balance truly is the person's highest priority 
and they do an amazing job at balancing on a stable surface, then and only then I might consider putting them on some kind of unstable surface. But that would be the only time. Um, right. Now I did, it's interesting you asked this, uh, two months ago I was asked to shoot a, a video, a workout video for a, comp- a local company called Stamina that manufactures a, what's called a Juvo board. It's basically mm-hmm. a, a, a land-based version of a stand-up paddle board. Um, and put together a video and as soon as I posted that video one of your former co-workers called me out hey why are you teaching people training on unstable surfaces doesn't that violate everything that you've talked about with movement restoration movement outlaws and so then I asked her I'm like hey why don't you post that online let me answer that online um and she did and and it, and she, it was actually a really good question and and I knew I was going to get that question because I was doing stuff on an unstable surface, which is something that I've been adamantly opposed to. But if you actually watch that video um, and and watch the progression that I go through with that, very little of what I do is actually in a completely unstable environment. Um, After that video shoot, you know, talking with the people that that did the video and manufactured the board, uh, we're actually in discussions about doing several other videos because some of the stuff I showed them, they're like, we'd never even thought to use the board this way. Because a lot of what I did, one of the things I did was I did a push-up. But I did a push-up where my left hand was on the ground and my right hand was up on the board. So I had a little bit of an unstable surface, but I also had a very stable surface on the ground. And so I was having to control and work out that weight shift and create a new strategy in the presence of that. So it wasn't a fully unstable surface. And then at the end, I actually did some, I did one or two drills actually all the way up on the board. But kind of what I wanted to highlight with that was a progression from stable to unstable while still honoring that developmental continuum because we did I did the same thing. I started down on prone, worked to quadruped, into some kneeling postures, and all the way up to stance. Again, working through stable to unstable while, while utilizing the board. So I do think it has its place, but I also think that fully unstable training that place is, is very limited and, and the people that are right. going to benefit from that are, are very few and far between. to start making some changes let's change the way we eat let's change the way we live and let's change the way we treat each other you see the old way wasn't working so it's on us to do what we gotta do